Welcome to Get to the Good Part. I'm Ryan. I'm John. And I'm Chris. And here we are at Chapter 5, a chapter that begins in Advanced Oasis Studies. It's a class that basically focuses on the history of the Oasis and uh, its creator, James Halliday. This is, for all intents and purposes, a blow-off class for Wade, uh, because for the past five years, he's spent all of his free time, at least 12 hours a day, I think he says at one point in the chapter, studying the almanac, um, several biographies and documentaries, any resource he can get his hands on uh, pertaining to James Halliday. The Eggman, that book that he read like four times. I mean, honestly, like, other than this book, I don't think I've ever read another book four times. I, I listened to it once, and I'm like, that was a really good read. I'm not sure I've read four books. <laughs> and that's exactly why we asked you to be on a podcast <laughs> yeah, about <I> books. <laughs> so as he as he pours through these biographies and these documentaries, uh, he's keeping record of anything Hunt-related uh, inside what he calls his Grail Diary, naming it after uh, the Indiana Jones Grail Diary. Uh, we also find out that Wade, when he's in this class at least, is basically that guy in class. You know, that fucking guy. You fucking know it all. Who's always raising his hand, who always has something to add to the conversation. If you say to yourself, I, I don't really know who that guy is. I've, I've never experienced that guy. You're probably that guy. <laughs> and you should probably cool it down just a little bit. Does anybody know the answer to the question? Anyone? Anyone other than Wade? He does have every reason to, though. He's more qualified to teach this class than than his teacher. I'm not saying he's not. I'm not saying he's not. I mean, like, it would be hard to be Wade in that class and not interject every five seconds. Right. Because he's genuinely interested. It's not like he's trying to do it for attention. He's genuinely interested in this topic. Well... You'd think that he wouldn't want to give any additional hints away. And, and in fact, he actually says that, that he wants to, but he quietly just keeps it to himself and then tries to listen for those itty-bitty little morsels of, of, of knowledge that he didn't have before. But, I, I mean, I get that, though. You want to raise your hand and kind of show off what you know. But, you know, you don't want to give a hint to somebody that you inadvertently raised your hand just to kind of get that thrill of showing off yeah which by the way i was never that kid he does it and and like you said he he mentions at this point that he's you know he's holding off on pointing out details that were left out um trying to zero in on the story instead listening for anything that may be relevant to the hunt um just trying to pick up whatever details he can that he may have uh may have overlooked uh, but, you know, the other thing to, to bring up, too, is that this is this shows some pretty strong self-awareness for Wade mm-hmm. um, it, w- when he comes out and, and just basically acknowledges nobody is interested in what I'm saying but me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he flat out says that. I, I, I understand the fact. So that, that kind of battles against what we were saying, too. You know, I mean, he's. He's he's got he's got a little bit of awareness of his own situation. He understands that he's probably got a little more fire and fervor for this subject than most people do in that class. Um, so it's good that he tries to can it a little bit. So now Wade is is sitting back and listening, like we said, just trying to soak in whatever information he can from uh, from Mister Cider's discussing passages from the Eggman, uh, the particular Halliday biography they're reading from today. Um, and they launch into basically what, for the rest of the chapter, is a history, a, a very exhaustive history on James Halliday. I can't wait <laughs> to see how they do this in the movie. And yeah, I, and, I, you know, yeah. I thought about that, too. Uh, now that I now that I've reread it, I've, I've actually got the word version uh, versus it being um, read to me. And uh, it's just it's interesting. It's almost like you could see like the book cracking open and pages flipping with pictures of him and his history and boom, like it kind of flashes back to, you know, his drunk dad and his his bipolar waitress <laughs> mom, bipolar waitress of a mom and drunk father. That's got to be a rough dinner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two unpredictable parents. But hey, they buy him a TRS-80. 
Uh, yeah, but he wanted something more expensive. Still, it's nice that they're indulging his hobby. Anyways, we open up this part finding out that James Donovan Halliday, his full name, was born on June 12th, 1972. And guys, I did it again. I went back and tried to find some significance to the date June the 12th uh, in history. Anything that would be pertinent to the book. Um, and I found some things that are sort of interesting. Um, on June 12th, 1981, Raiders of the Lost Ark was released. Nice. Um, and there's a nice. reference to to Indiana to Jones. Indiana Jones yeah. Yeah. So that's that's pretty that, cool. So that's that might of, not be coincidence. connection there. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know if it is or not. Um, like we, we said before in a previous episode, Ernest Clyde himself is born in... 1972 but i think he was born on march 29th so it's not his birthday another thing that happened on june 12th uh, in 1987 ronald reagan um told mikhail gorbachev to tear down the tear wall. down that wall mm. yeah so that's another thing um but yeah, and, and I can't really assign it to one thing in specific. Unfortunately, we don't get an exact date on this, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, Ready Player One, the book, uh, was sold to Crown Publishing Group in June of 2010. Interesting. I wonder if there is kind of an homage there, like a personal event, like he received the letter from the publishing company. Yes. Well, well when I saw the Raiders thing, I was like, that's got to be Yeah, that, I would, that would be my thought. Who knows? Maybe we'll get an opportunity to ask him. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> but by all accounts, Halliday is, is, you know, as a kid was extremely bright, but socially inept. Um, could not deal with people. Because of this, he spent a lot of time by himself, uh, not communicating with the people around him. So, you know, this, this obviously extended to, you know, him at school. Um, does it really, you know, it's, it's strange that they bring up his parents but they don't really give you a picture of his home life at all. You know what I mean? They don't say like, you know, you know, did he did he interact with his parents? Did he love his parents? Did he hate his parents? Who knows? But he yeah. left right after high school. Well, if he you left know? after high school, you got to keep in mind, man, he he left in 91. Right. Uh cuz I was born in 74, he's born in 72. So as far as his parents is concerned, he probably really didn't talk about them and he'd be the only one really to to discuss them. And it's not like the internet was back then, so, you know, wouldn't have been very prolific. And he was a nobody at that period of time. Yeah, and I'm sure he wouldn't have answered that question had he been asked. Did your parents suck? <laughs> so, I your do, mom I, and dad. He's already socially let's, awkward. I, I don't want to yeah. talk about that. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that fucking mess. Um, so, so, one day in junior high, um, a little bit of uh, luck and fate steps in here. When Halliday is sitting by himself at a cafeteria table, reading a Dungeons & Dragons player's handbook. And who walks by but a kid named Ogden Morrow. How do they come up with these names? That's a, such a fucking <laughs> awesome name. Yeah. It is a it's sweet It's so name. unusual. It is a cool name. But uh, Ogden, Ogden Morrow... Uh, it turns out is into the same things uh, Halliday's into. You know, they're both into role-playing games, uh, computers, comic books, sci-fi, all, you know, the whole nine yards. So Morrow invites Halliday to his his D&D game that he, held, he holds weekly at his house. And it's there that Morrow meets his first group of friends. Eventually, this partnership between Ogden Morrow and James Halliday is going to become... Uh, you know, it, he likens it into the book right here to Jobs and Wozniak. No shit. You basically modeled the characters <laughs> after those two. Right. It, it's a yeah, that's exactly it, right. Yeah, it's pretty in fact, obvious. Uh, on reflecting that, I didn't remember them specifically saying Jobs and Wozniak, but it's really good that they kind of put it here because you're really kind of drawing the picture that that is already in your mind which is that they kind of reflect the same kind of personality and almost the same physical attributes. Yeah, physically, they're, they're pretty similar to, to Jobs and Wozniak. What I thought was really interesting, though, is that certain traits between the two are juxtaposed. Like, uh, for instance, you know, Halliday, who, you know, physically, at least, 
resembles Jobs by his, you know, by by how he's described in the book. Uh, he he actually looks like Jobs, and he has Jobs' sort of demeanor where he's very short with people, uh, and there's stories about him just firing people on the spot. Um, you know, that's that's very much like Jobs, but Jobs was not a programmer. <laughs> Halliday was the superior programmer. Mm-hmm. And Wozniak was was more of the you know charismatic social one. That's consistent with with Wozniak from you know from the accounts that I've heard. Seems like a really nice, huggable guy. Mm-hmm. But that's where it sort of ends for 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 Morrow. Um, he's he's a he's a capable programmer, but his real skill is is going out and pimping, you know, gregarious games, which is the company. That they're about to start here. So those five um, and a quarter but, inch floppies from inside of a coat, like, hey, baby. Yeah. Dude, I've got a whole lineup of games inside my coat here. He makes a game called Anorak's Quest for, for his D&D circle, his new friends. And Anorak is a name that's given to him by a British foreign exchange student, a female British foreign exchange student uh, in the gaming circle. And he likes it so much that he basically keeps that name with him through every one of his digital or fantasy personas he creates. So he, he sets out to, to design this game, and he designs it on in basic on his TRS-80 color computer. Chris, can you... what If I design a game in basic and I am a very capable programmer around the time that this would have happened, what would that game look like? That game would suck. <laughs> that game would suck so bad. But you know what, though? In comparison to the other games, uh, it'd probably be pretty cool. And when I was in sixth grade, uh, fifth grade, I was programming on a TI-90. And I had no memory. So, like, my friend and I, my friend Tony and I would, would stay up, like, late at night coding. I, and I did not realize just how geek that was. Just so, so obsessive nerd level because this had no memory on it when you turned it off nothing was saved there was no hard drive you lost everything you wrote and it's one of those situations where it's from top to bottom it's you're just writing this really long strip of code and if you need to jump down to a place for it to do what it does you'd say jump to line this and you'd skip over a chunk of code there was none of this sort of you know, object-oriented programming where you just sort of, you know, hey, I'm going to go grab that chunk of code over there and run it right now. No, it was just, why don't you just skip ahead in the code? And if you need to jump back, you would jump up to line 22 or some shit like that. So coding sucked, dude, at, mm-hmm. back then. It was just, it was just, uh, it, it sucked. There's just no way about it. And the TRS-80, we called them the Trash 80s. <laughs> that was their nickname. That, that was like the run-of-the-mill shit that they had in school and school was not paying much for computers so right. they were called trash 80s it, it's a cumbersome process programming a game in basic but the end result what does that look like is it, it, it i mean does it come out looking like an atari game does it come out you know is it a text adventure i mean what does it look like let's see he programmed it on a, in basic on a trs 80 color computer y- your colors are bad i mean it's i, I <laughs> Atari makes this look so Atari makes this look so horrible. Just just god awful. Like there weren't any really in comparison to today, there just weren't any good games that I saw for the TRS eighty. So TRS eighty is is the predecessor to Atari. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I don't remember seeing an Atari when I when I was messing around with those things. But the Commodore sixty four was much better. Like it had a little bit more memory and had a hard drive and you could do more with it. And I, I even think the, the graphics capabilities were a smidge better and there were more games like, you know, TRS 80 had just a really a handful of games in comparison. I played, I, I remember I played on a Commodore 64 when I was a kid. What'd you play? Uh, it was really strange. There was this, it was a game, where it was just the only thing, it was one screen, and it looked like almost like a dollhouse kind of setup. And there was, like, a little guy. And basically it was like you would point and click, and you would just, like, let him live his life. It was, like, say, like a very, very early version of, like, Sims. Almost. <laughs> yeah. So did you get to choose different clothing for him? 
Uh, I don't remember. How about furniture? Just like you just make him eat and like take his pet out and shit. Like it was, <laughs> it was really basic. And I remember sitting there playing with my my friend was obsessed with it, and I would sit there and I'd be like, "Is this all you do?" <laughs> yeah, like, what do you hope to gain from yeah, this? Do it. When do we when do and, we shoot well, somebody? But here's the thing, and this is why games were so much fun back then. You know, with I guess with reverence to an Easter egg situation, but but really with it, we've talked about this with video games before. You know, there would always be urban legends around games, or you get the feeling that there was something, you know, something that would happen. You know, if you waited long enough, um, you know, some sort of secret would would happen within the game. Of course, most of the time that's not the case, but I, that that was his motivation for playing this game. He's like, I, I don't know. What, what if you what if you make him live for a certain number of days? What what, what happens? He'll die. What if he gets older? It happens or to all like of that. us. Or he gets older, like what? He'll grow white pixels. <laughs> yeah, white huge block pixels. I was like, I was like, That's dude, I think you're gonna get older before that guy does. And then he just lies. He's not real. He lies down and it says R.I.P. Thanks for playing. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't even know if there was if there was really the the processing power to make that happen, John. <laughs> Normally, when he goes to sleep, there's Z's, but when he dies, yeah. no Z's. Ah, uh, he's just his lying. eyes just and, turn into X's. Then it just goes to black. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 to be honest with you, the past for anybody listening, the past three or so minutes. Uh, we're not even really talking about the game that I played. We just made this whole thing up. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of it resembles the game that I played. I don't remember the name of it. If you remember the name of it, please hit us up on Twitter or on, you know, Reddit or wherever. Let us know what the name of it is. I'd be interested to find out. So they make Anorak's Quest, and this is the first game that, that Halliday programs on his trash 80. Um... And the game is so good and so addictive to the people in the group, they convince Halliday to package this thing. And by package, I mean stick it in a Ziploc bag with a photocopied manual and then sell it at a local computer store. Um, it, it's pretty damn successful. They can't create enough copies to keep it on the shelves. So it's pretty clear at this point that, you know, they've got a direction that they're headed but while they're still in high school, Morrow and Halliday decide to start their own video game company. It's Gregarious Games. And they start developing new versions of the game um, to be compatible with, you know, the Apple II and a bunch of other different computers. By the time they're, they're getting close to, uh, to, to graduation, they don't, they don't even finish high school. They just get way too caught up creating these games. Um, and at a certain point, gets so big that they can no longer be housed inside of Morrow's basement. So at that point, they take Gregarious Games and they move it over to Columbus, Ohio. John, you, you've got family in Ohio, or you had it. How far away is uh, Middletown from Columbus? <laughs> Do you know? So Middletown is between Cincinnati and Dayton. I lived in Dayton. Oh, okay. And Dayton's uh, still... A- couple hours from Columbus so it wasn't a short jaunt to the strip mall in Columbus I mean that's probably a three or four hour move for them so so gregarious games um basically takes Halliday and Morrow out of high school uh, they don't finish high school they don't don't even graduate uh they get busy working on Anorax Quest 2 which is going to be their sequel to the wildly pop popular <laughs> Anorex Quest. They're they're beginning to build a reputation for gregarious games. Um, basically, that they they sort of set the bar for the video game industry in the book. What's really interesting here, okay, is anytime you read like a a piece of a of, of fiction, a dystopian fiction like you know like this. There's always that jumping off point, right? Usually there's a few where reality, like real history, separates from, uh, from, or the book separates from the actual history. So my question is this. This is around 1990, 
when they're moving out and gregarious games really starts to pick up steam, right? Mm-hmm. So my question is, when did the when did the big crash happen for Atari? Well, the ET came out in '82, and then and then because ET did so horrible, they actually buried eight hundred thousand games <laughs> yeah. in Arizona in the, in, or New in, Mexico. It was New Mexico. Yeah, and, and they did a a dig and they found the games, like they did research. It was like on the edge of sub some uh, subdivision. And, they and just, you know they, who was there for it? Who? Ernest Klein. <laughs> really. Was he really? Yes, he was. Wow. He drove his fucking DeLorean out there to watch it. Oh, wow. So this happened happened recently where they dug This happened not long ago. It was in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Yeah, that happened in 2015. And now uh, an an Atari ET game is worth more than $1,500. That's ridiculous. I mean, it's it's, amazing. It's considered the worst video game of all time, correct? It was a piece of shit. Have you ever played it, Chris? It's like the Picasso of video games, really? No. <laughs> no. You couldn't even say it that with not a straight the fucking face. Picasso of video games. <laughs> uh, Wasn't it just him uh, like him set in the woods? Like E.T. in the woods? Some of it, yeah. Like certain parts he's running through the woods. I remember the game because it was very similar to me to the Indiana Jones game for Atari. And Indiana Jones, you could move from one screen to another. And you had to get items in a certain order to unlock areas. And like the last part of the game, you had to fall. And and all it was was you walked to this one place at the bottom of one of the screens. And then your character slipped down and then shifted to another screen where you had this wall and a branch and a hole underneath it. And you had to click the button just right to do the parachute for Indiana Jones to come just under the limb to get in the hole and then he would come down, and there would be, like, this weird pyramid because it's so freaking blocky. It meant to be, like, a pile of sand, but you had to have the shovel, so you'd go back and forth and back and forth, and eventually you would get the arc, and that was the end of the damn game. Mm-hmm. But E.T. was kind of like that, very screwy, very blocky, uh, and you had to know the order of events and the things that you had to capture. Just Evidently, it sucked horrible. The few times I played it, I just, I'd seen E.T., and I still didn't get it. So we talked about this before, but we go into a little more detail uh, at this point in the chapter um, about the differences between Morrow and Halliday. Physically, you've got Halliday, this tall, gaunt, angular, you know, tall glass of water of a man, I guess, <laughs> who's painfully shy and can't, he can't, you know, can't maneuver himself socially. And then that you've got this round little Ogden Morrow, <laughs> all curves, who who is the most bubbly and charismatic person in the world, Rubenesque. Yeah, <laughs> I think they say rotund is, is how I, I prefer Rubenesque, <laughs> which is like the male version of Rubenesque, right? right. <laughs> but this is something that was sent to us by somebody who's on Twitter. Uh, his name is the Great and Powerful Og. <laughs> Twitter. And it's kind of a Ready Player One fan. Right account. on. I've been following this guy since we started the show. And uh, he just kind of tweets out stuff, you know, pertaining to Ready Player One, things like that. But I te- or I sent him a tweet and I was like, you, you know, this is your debut chapter, man. <laughs> you got to ask a question. <laughs> so his question was um, Love Simon Pegg. Mm. Uh, but how much aging are they going to do to a very young-looking 47-year-old in Ready Player One? You know, I would I, I would think the problem is going to be in reverse. How are they going to make Simon Pegg look as a teenager? Because he's 47. That's that's. Well, I would imagine that they're going to have somebody else playing them as teenagers. I'd, I'd say they don't have to necessarily stick to all the features, but you could definitely make him look older by throwing on wired rim spectacles... And giving him an unruly beard. That would age his shit like 20 years. Let's face it, he's he's no spring chicken as it is. I mean, he's getting up there. I like Simon Pegg. I really like Simon Simon Pegg. I just don't, I just didn't, when I read this, I didn't, I didn't visualize Simon Pegg as Ogden Morrow. I think his personality is fucking perfect for it. I, I, I absolutely agree. Like, I could imagine some of the stuff that he ends up saying 
as we progress through just i could hear his voice in it and he has that sort yeah. of he is a he is a he is a geek hardcore he definitely is yes he he uh he he I, he, but he's also very friendly and very outgoing and relatable. You know, yeah, he could, he could, he could sell me anything. Right. Seriously, I love his stuff. Simon Pegg is kind of perfect to play Og in some ways, maybe not others. Um, maybe, just not physically. That's a, just that's not all, physically. Yeah. yeah, but that could be fixed with makeup. They'll figure something out. <laughs> I don't know what Og. To answer your question, man, I don't know what, but we'll see. Uh, we do know this. Uh, in every way, shape, and form, he is the polar opposite of his buddy Halliday uh, in personality. Halliday, as you know, not to beat a dead horse, but this chapter does kind of tend to do that every now and again. Um, Halliday is just an extremely closed-off individual. Um, it it extends beyond just interviews. He's not just publicly shy. I mean, like this guy has a problem around people in general. Uh, he's known to lock himself in his office, um, you know, going days without eating or sleeping or anything like that. Just, you know, presumably just chugging Adderall in the program. <laughs> 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 Who knows? <laughs> but then again, maybe he's just surviving and like his sheer will to create games, which is great, you know. Yeah. But it's just, uh, I don't know, like if 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 he, you know, I mean... Obviously, his mom was bipolar, so maybe he's you know prone to manic episodes that would help you program the night away. I guess I, I I don't really know, but it's just it's bizarre, you know, that he has these just these fits where he can sit there and work nonstop. Well, you know, it it makes you wonder because if if he was you know if, if it got worse and the chapter kind of goes into like how he just it just got worse, given what he had to program as a legacy for himself. I have to wonder how long in advance did he know that he was dying? Well, this would at this point in the story it would have been about 60 years before well, how how yeah, was I he guess when he it died? would have been 60, it would have been 60. It would have been yeah, he you're was right. 67. So this is like 40 years before he died? Yeah, I guess so. Maybe later in life, you know. We we don't want to get too far ahead. Right. Mm. But, you know, uh, these proclivities of his do, you know, do come back. Um and and they have, they do play a role later in the story. It's funny when when he brings up here that uh, Halliday tended to speak so rapidly that his words were often unintelligible, and he had a disturbing high pitched laugh. Huh. Who do, I I immediately thought of Quentin Tarantino in interviews oh. when he said that. Wow, that's okay. that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, I was like I, I was like man, I'll bet he sounds exactly like because have, have you heard Quentin Tarantino in an interview? Yes. He's gotten a lot better, but, like, especially when, like, Pulp Fiction came out, like, you would see him and you'd be like, there's something wrong with that guy. Well, I just... I, like, I love yeah, his movies. I love his movies, but, too, and I just couldn't stand watching him speak. The way he talks like this, you know, okay, okay, okay. And, like, that's how he talks. And it's like, Jesus, man. Like, I didn't understand a fucking word you said. And I wanted to know. I wanted to know what you were talking mm. about. Okay, so so it's a cross between Christopher Lloyd in Back to the Future and Christopher Lloyd in Toontown. A Roger Rabbit. Where his voice goes like this! <laughs> uh, yeah, that's pretty good. When I killed your brother. <laughs> so maybe a cross between Christopher Lloyd and Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Woody Allen. And Woody Allen. <laughs> Woody if those two yeah. had a child, and then that child had a daughter. Because <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I got, a a straight, I got a straight Quentin Tarantino vibe out of that. I could see that. I could see where you're coming from with that. Um, but anyways, so he was prone to do weird things. Like if he was just bored during an interview, he'd space out, get up, and just walk away. Because that's something you do sometimes, I guess. <laughs> Uh, but at any rate, nobody was surprised by this because it's just who he was. That's just part part of the part of the deal when you have Halliday come and talk to you. Um, his obsessions were a huge part of his life. Obviously, video games is one of them. Sci-fi and fantasy. Um, he has a fixation on the '80s. No shit. 
there's really no surprise there. Um, but he would get pissed off at people for not recognizing obscure references from the 80s or cartoons or whatever. And then he would just be known to fire somebody on the spot. Now, this is this is a reproduction of a of an, you know, an urban legend that you would hear about Steve Jobs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can see this being kind of blown up. And I, I guess at this point in the story, we're really we're reflecting on what the media had to say about his life. Uh, and, and this is even, you know, third hand because this is wade talking about what he knows about him based on books written about him Mm -hmm. so you have to wonder how much of this is extreme like how much of this is a characterization and not so much the reality of who the person is but 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 legendary you know like maybe he went off on some dude once and that was like the final straw and he fired his ass and then the urban myth was oh he just gets upset at the drop of a hat when you don't know some shit and he ends up firing like you know half the staff or something. I can mm-hmm. see it getting like blown out of proportion. Right. Yeah. But at the end of his freak out, Morrow would always go back and rehire the guy. So good on him for that. Um, because he had these weird, these weird sort of obsessions, and because he was so socially inept and awkward. Um, and, and and again, this plays into what you were talking about too, Chris, is that it was basically posthumously that that they declared or they they concluded is the word that they use in the book that he had Asperger's syndrome. Right. Now that's a conclusion based off of seeing him in interviews and seeing him you know, it, it basically a situation where he's least comfortable. Not that sitting down with like a psychologist or anything like that would ever be comfortable for a guy like this, but you're really kind of tested his limits by judging him based on what how he acts in public. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you know it's funny we talk about this now, but we're seeing this exact same thing start to happen in today. Like we've got psychologists and psychiatrists that are coming out against POTUS and saying. Warning signs, this man is not mentally stable. He exhibits a lot of of really, really bad mental habits that that have names yeah. and should not be part of anyone's psychological profile for leading an entire country, let alone one that has a shitload of nukes. Uh, but there is that other side, which is that ethically, professionally, no psychiatrist should evaluate somebody else publicly let alone without bringing them into their office and having sort of a controlled environment. So you have like a hundred or so psychiatrists that are that are kind of coming out beyond the ethical boundary of their professional industry and saying we, we can't be silenced because we really think there's an issue here. Now that's different than, you know, evaluating a really popular figurehead and trying to figure out where he's coming from because here's a dude who hid, you know, billions of dollars and you're trying to get in his head to figure out well where would he have stuck it but i just think it's interesting that you know today we have psychiatrists that are doing that publicly and in the book you have him being evaluated in the same kind of way Mm -hmm. and that's something that's happened throughout history i think you know i mean that's I, I I think that was something that even abraham lincoln had to deal with i mean it was true in his case there were plenty of people trying to figure out what was in his head Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> Did you not catch I got that? It. Really? I got it. <laughs> no, I'm just speechless. <laughs> that t- for two fucking episodes in a row, we managed to to work in a presidential assassination joke. This is a book about Ready Player One. <laughs> You gotta laugh about it at some point. Dude, you set that up. You keep joking about assassination. You can't pop the fucking ball in the air and not expect someone to spike it. I'm disappointed in you that you didn't like do that on purpose, even. <laughs> What's in his head? Jesus. I feel bad. I feel like it's too soon. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was a little bit older. Oh, but JF, JFK though. was too soon. Too soon. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us, everyone. Um, <laughs> let's move on. 
again, you know, here's Ernest Klein really driving the point home, you know, right into your fucking head. <laughs> Despite his eccentricities, no one ever questioned Halliday's genius. Yeah, dude, we know. <laughs> we know. <laughs> we get it. He's a genius. Like, we, we know. You know, you don't, it, but, it, but it's brought up. And I think, I think that they're trying to, I, I don't really know what the point is. I know that, I know that sometimes when, when I'm writing, I'll get into a rhythm and if it feels right there, I'm going to leave it there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think you'd need to say it because if, if you've got a community of people that are evaluating him mentally and they're saying he's got issues but you got to come back and say, but he's freaking brilliant. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting, too, that, you know, he is he is very smart. He is socially inept. But somehow, even though he's socially inept, he's, he's able to create games that people love. So you have to understand people on a certain level to uh, to be able to create games for them, right? Otherwise, they would just be these, like, unworldly impossibly hard challenges puzzles things like that because mm-hmm. he could create those right but he doesn't he creates games that people love and i think that's interesting and it's not something that's really fleshed out but just something worth thinking about like fucking ninja gaiden did you ever play that? Did you ever play Ninja Gaiden? I did. John used to play Ninja Gaiden yeah. all the time. I did. Well, it was the same kind of concept. You had this sort of brilliant Japanese game designer who made Ninja Gaiden. And people came back and said, look, the game's too fucking hard. And he's like, no, you just suck. <laughs> You'd have to know people to understand what makes a game addictive. And part of yeah. that is is replayability. If you get to a place in the game where you feel like you can't go any further, you're not smart enough, you don't have the coordination... You're just going to put the controller down. So an addictive uh, you, you game said, has to... I'm sorry. You said put the controller down? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I rage quit. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you. Does that, does that involve that controller's throwing going into the, wall. The, the, con- yes. the, the controller down? Like, yes. F this son of a... There's no placing now. <laughs> you rage quit? Fuck this. That's, yeah, that son of a bitch is in the wall. Is this like, is this like rage quitting on <laughs> it, gambling? It's so rare that it happens. We covered we covered one time when it did. Yeah. John and I did. Yeah, uh, that that was a rage quit night. Yeah. That cost me seventy dollars yeah, to replace that controller. Have you gone through? Just no, one. No, that's the th- like I said. It happens very rarely. Yeah, usually there's like, there's like twenty dents in the drywall and a pile of crumbling plastic <laughs> at the foot of the wall. My my son is the greatest danger to controllers. <laughs> Because he doesn't even have to rage quit. If he just wants to drink, he'll be like, you know, <laughs> fuck it. <laughs> he'll just, like, toss it to the side, like, onto the ground. <laughs> just casually just drop the microphone and leave in the room, right? We've all been there. When you've tried something so many times over, and it's just like, well, you know what? I know it's something small I'm not doing or I'm doing wrong, and just, you know. Chris is shaking his head no, like, no, I'm just good at every game. <laughs> No, I just reached that place in the game where I'm like, I think I've reached the end. <laughs> like, there's a boss that I can't get past because I just don't have the enough ammo. I don't. Have I've, the I've reached the end now. I am simply done with this game, which is frustrating me. And I'll put the controller down and I shall walk away and That's what maybe have happens. a nice walk. I even tell myself sometimes, like, I'll come back to this game after I've thought about how I'm going to kill that thing. You know, if I was actually in the game, like, I'd fight with the boss. And I'd be like, man, you're good. Uh... That's cool, man. I'm just going to leave now. Um, I think this quest is over for me. Uh, I didn't do what I wanted to do, but evidently you did what you wanted to do. And um, yeah. Do you have like a pre-rage quit like thing that you fucking say every time? Like son of a diddly? Son of a diddly? Son of a Okay, so that's what Ned Flanders would say. What would you say? (laughs) (laughs) I got kids. Boy, son of a diddly ding dong! It's this the more, game's too hard. <laughs> the more violent I feel, the more cartoony I sound. That's that's the best way I can put it. <laughs> you know, I go evil. Ned so when you get super pissed off, you're just <laughs> well, you accept defeat better than most. Mother freaking yeah. unicorns! It's <sighs> I'm not going to spend sixty, seventy dollars on a game. Chris just <laughs> and Chris just turns into a fucking just care bear. When he gets angry, Care Bear <laughs> stare. It's like, 
Yeah, that's he right. Just, he just gets a rainbow that glows on his chest, and it, he it goes around out. just trying to spread the care. It projects out to the uh, to the video game case. <laughs> no, I, uh, every time I'm like, I'm like, why did I buy this? It's not even fun. <laughs> I'm not even having fun anymore. Until and then you I beat throw it, the control. and then, and then you beat it. You come back and you beat it, and you're like, I overreacted. Yeah, that was a good. Especially game. because none good. of this is real. <laughs> it doesn't doesn't count for anything. <laughs> But I got super pissed. I reached that place with destiny. Really? Okay. I, I got you know you're fighting and you get to the barge, the large barge, that you have to cross the little the little plank bridge to get onto the barge, and then yeah. you fight your way inside the barge, and then you've got that one room in the back with that giant boss and these fucking spawning little bosses, and he has like that big chair. Or some shit towards the end that you oh, end up yeah. running around like a little pussy with a with whatever gun you've got, and you run out of ammo, and then you have to like kill somebody, and you got to go grab whatever shit they drop, and it I, it's been a while, but he just killed my ass like I did it twenty times, and after that I was like, I'm done, like I I I'm I have finished my quest. It ended with that asshole doing the raids. <laughs> That's true. I didn't do any of the online shit, really. Not that much at oh, all. Oh, the raids were so much fun. I did do Anyways. raids. I take that back. I did. Like, we'd go into a room. We'd run around. And, yeah, I did the. I did, I, I did some of the group raids, but it just didn't hold my attention. I, I have no, no need to comment on Destiny again. So you enjoyed it that much. You made it to the end, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I made, I made it to the end fairly early in, in the game. <laughs> Well, they say if you don't begin, every non-beginning is another end. Let's move on. The combination of Halliday's skills as a programmer and Morrow's skills as a schmoozer, his charisma, they become multi-millionaires by the time they're 30. Sons of bitches. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Halliday and Morrow are, are buying up all the DeLoreans, all the Star Wars action figures, comic books, vintage lunchboxes. It's it's a nerd's paradise here. Mm-hmm. Is that what you would do with, with like, a, a was it a billion dollars by 30 or a million by 30? It was a multi-millionaires by 30. What would you get with, if you became a multi-millionaire? Something very practical and boring. <laughs> You'd put together, like, a shrine room or a collectible room. Yeah. Yeah. I've got one now, and I'm not a multi-millionaire. Yeah. So, I mean, you can imagine with multi-millions. Yeah, so you'd have a house that was a shrine room. You could. You could, but I don't think I'd go that far. I'd be much like Ryan. I'd be pretty boring with it. (laughs) So, um, at the height of their success, uh, Gregarious Games just sort of seizes up and stops. Uh, Publicly, you don't really hear much from them. Um... You know, they're not making new games. They're not putting anything out. They just go quiet. This is leading people to think that they're about to go bankrupt. Um, And that may have been the case because in the background, they're actively working on something that is going to change the entire world. And in 2012, December of 2012, they unveil that thing with the launch of the Oasis, the ontologically anthropocentric sensory immersive simulation uh with this with this new simulation that they're putting out there they also changed the name of the company to gregarious simulation systems this is really interesting um this is something that i think john and i had talked about uh in the first chapter i don't know that it made it onto the show but somebody brought it up in 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 the reddit thread and i thought this is a good time to bring it up too is that it's really interesting that a guy like Halliday would be a founder of a company called Gregarious Simulation Systems, since he is the opposite of Gregarious. But I think, and this is just my two cents on it, I think that Ernest Klein put this in here almost satirically. By the way, it was an Iron Iron Beeble now, on I, Reddit was I, the one that brought that up. I went back and reread this particular part, and it does not say that Halliday came up with that name. No, 
It doesn't say who came up with that name. Yeah, it just says that in December of 2012, Gregarious Games rebranded, which means they came up with Gregarious Games when they first moved into into Morrow's basement. Mm-hmm. Right, we knew that. Yeah. So, but I it, just I find it really interesting though that that I I think it was almost written in there satirically, because like you put those two words together, gregarious simulation. And if you think about the Oasis, that's really what it is. I mean, we talk about later in the chapter, um, we go into you can change your name, age, sex, race, height, weight. You could do whatever you want. People are meeting each other. They're getting married in the Oasis without ever having met each other. Yep. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's giving people who have the same sort of problems engaging socially that uh, that Halliday had. It's giving them an opportunity to to be gregarious, to you know create the, themselves physically and. You know, their voice, they can make it ex- sound exactly like whatever they want. I mean, it's, it's, you create your ideal circumstances. And I think the thing there is, we see that today, and maybe, maybe this was an intentional reflection, but mm-hmm. anonymity and the ability to get beyond the things that you might be insecure about can make mm-hmm. you more social. You know, the ability to, to pretend in games to be a completely different character can allow you to hide your insecurities or set them off to the side as if it's a part of a, a different character, a different life, and make yourself more. And, and we see that online. We've got people who are more themselves online than they are in person because through anonymity, there's no repercussion to speaking and being a complete asshole. You know, you've got people who, who pretty much kind of make a, a thing of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no one's going to come after them. They just... they. This is who they are deep down inside. They can't be that way in public. And the internet is their outlet and their anonymous outlet. So this would be even more that. Like you're going to see a truer people in the Oasis than you would see in the real world because it, you remove their insecurities and give them anonymity and watch them go. So I think Gregarious is a is an apt name as well. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So yeah, there, there you go. I mean, it, it's it's something that I think is is it, it it's an interesting and well chosen name. Gregarious simulation systems for that reason. Um, it starts off as an MMO, but eventually ends up becoming how people interact across the board, right? And you know, eventually the economy starts running through the Oasis. We've talked about this before. But uh, there, there are certain sections of the Oasis where Halliday and GSS is allowing people to buy real estate for business in, the, in Sector 1. Um, he calls it surreal estate. He gets into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of, uh, of how the Oasis works, too, uh, in this part of the chapter. Um, and this is something that we kind of went back and forth on. Uh, it only costs a quarter to access the oasis but it does also mention that haptic gloves and an oasis visor are required as well but we don't really have a price point on that right Mm -hmm. no yeah it's it's uh but if you want everyone to get online it had to have been a low price point right I mean, the the entrance, because to say it's only a quarter, and by the way, it's going to cost $1,000 to play the game, that's a $1,000 game. And and in all reality, you, you know, you're going to be excluding anybody who can't afford $1,000 for a fucking game, right? It's difficult, too, you know, cause I, to, to really shoehorn it in there. Because you could say that, oh, well, if my job's in the Oasis, my employer will provide me with haptics and visors, just like Wade's school provides him with haptics and visors right but we can't really get to the point where employers within the oasis can afford to send you those haptics and visors until people are using it all over the globe which is not that different than how apple handles it right i mean you're buying the hardware it doesn't cost you anything for the operating system or uh, for a number of software that they provide but you know, then you're then you're buying this, the games that people are producing. 
And of course, Apple's there taking 30 percent. So <laughs> we call that the segue oasis silence. Is, so the oasis, <laughs> because of these, because of the haptic goggles and the or the haptic gloves and the in the goggles, the oasis is unlike anything you could probably imagine. I mean, virtual reality was something that's been a promise from tech, you know, tech companies for years. But they finally managed to execute it here with the Oasis. Um, and they've done it in a way that kind of blew people's minds. Uh, basically, the way that the the visor works is that it shoots blue light into your retina and projects the image directly into your uh, into your eye. That doesn't sound safe. No. It doesn't sound I, I safe. I like that they're like, I like how it's like, it's a laser, but it's a safe laser. <laughs> So uh, I could shine it at a person flying an airplane. Oh God, no! It's not that safe. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm a skeptic when it comes to to shining shit in my eyes for a prolonged period. And it was somebody on Reddit too that that brought that up. Um, you know that that you would think that after you know, even though they say it's completely safe, after you know a period of time, they'll probably come back and say, okay. Maybe not. <laughs> well, you understand why it would have to be a laser, right? I own a VR headset, and you can still see outside your peripheral and the image that's shown. So I I like the idea of the lasers because it takes over your entire vision. So you're losing the sense of the real world visually. And it's less cumbersome. I would imagine. If I had to take my guess as to why lasers, because it does sound odd, like they have to use the word safe. It's that you could probably get a laser to a very, very pinpoint position. Like you could could project a single color, a single pixel on, on a smaller space than the resolution of what you would be throwing right up in front of your eyes. Because think of your screen. Your screen's not far away, but it's a few feet away. So resolution's not too is is good. It'd be good, but the closer you get to it, the closer you see the individual pixels. The easier it is to see those pixels, and to to pack the kind of color and detail, the reality that they're talking about. I'd imagine that it would make more sense to do the sweeping paint of a laser with color coming through than it would to try to paint that onto a screen. Where, like you said, you've still got a box that encases it, even if you wrap it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the chance that maybe technology has only gotten so small. Because that's the one thing that technology will bump up against at some point. Resolution. And the closer you bring that to your eyes, the crappier that gets. Right. So I I'd, I'd think laser would make sense to, to a, a okay. point. Well, before we get you off of your... Uh, <laughs> off of your... Uh... Your your power programmer rant there. Let's talk about the Oasis Reality Engine, which to me is even cooler than the laser sunglasses that you wear to see the Oasis. Uh, the Oasis Reality Engine is the engine that powers the sim- simulation. Um, therefore, it seems nearly impossible. That 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 you can have something, and they basically say at this point in the book that that it's it, it's crash resistant, or it's almost impossible for this thing to crash. It's it's interesting because Chris, I, I have a hard time even articulating how this would work in real life, but but really it it is almost the bigger technological feat here. <laughs> how how you could power something that you know. That obviously would just, it seems mind-blowing that this would even be something that was possible. But but how do they do it, and is it something that's a reality? Yeah, like you could do that today. About 15 years ago, NASA uh, created a piece of software. And, well, I'm sorry, it wasn't NASA, it was SETI. So, so we're even talking about, like, searching for aliens here. I mean, space, like, deep, hardcore geekdom, right? And what they did was they created this little piece of software that you could download and run. And it was just this sort of side graphic of a, of a, of a, a field of colors sort of swaying in the wind, if you will. But really what it was is that SETI was feeding chunks of data 
from its its research in the sky because it's pulling down radio waves and trying to evaluate patterns. And it was using everyone's spare processor power who downloaded this software to run in the background and to run in the foreground if you wanted to actually watch it kind of wave. Because it looked kind of like one of those weird uh, uh, Microsoft Media waveforms, like when you're playing a song and it looks like the music is bouncing in the wind with the various colors from green to red. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was identical to that kind of thing. But it was processing a chunk of SETI data. And they had tons of it because they had their giant radio microscope. <laughs> radio microscope. <laughs> their giant radio telescope. Uh, so they've, they've been doing it. And now we've got even more complex stuff like more complex systems we've got the cloud like everybody hears about the cloud that's what the cloud is it's just a a a ton of shared resources like like right now for 15 bucks you could get onto amazon you could use their cloud service you could run a process that's crazy intensive and what it'll do is amongst all of the systems connected to it if the cpu goes up it'll just go to a system next to it and say hey you got some cpus you got some cycles that i can borrow yeah, man, I need some of your spare cycles. And then look left, and I'm going to get some of your spare memory because I need some memory. Because not everyone is using all of the processes at the same time, so it distributes the resources. So from a game perspective, your problem with crashing is like if you run out of memory uh, or if your CPU just runs out of cycles to process everything that's going on. All of a sudden, you go from you know, 60 frames per second down to five frames per second because your system's trying to keep up with what the hell's going on. So instead, you're just distributing out to everybody else who has more cycles and memory to spare. And chunks of your data is just kind of sitting out on other people's machines, chunking away, and you need it close to you. So it's going to transition that to machines that are closer to you and then feed it to you. So the lag time is nil. You could, you could, if, if everyone is on, then your next door neighbor might actually be helping you to process your game. And because your next door neighbor is so close or potentially on the same network, the data that traverses from his machine to yours to complete that process is incredibly fast. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> All of that. <laughs> Do I do I need a more do I need a do I need a, a more colorful way to describe this? <laughs> no, it, it it makes sense. I think to a lot of our listeners, it makes a lot of sense. You know, everybody it, it, brings their own box of cereal to a big bowl of milk, <laughs> and they all pour their own cereal into the big bowl of milk, and then everybody gets to eat from it. And if you're a little bit hungrier than other people, you get to eat more cereal, and that's okay. Because someone else is going to bring more cereal. Well. There's more cereal there. Somebody else isn't eating as much as they thought they were going to. There's plenty more for you. Like, hey, dude, you going to eat that? All right, I'm just going to spoon some. <laughs> and that's the cloud, children. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, whatever it is and however the fuck it works, it's painting. <laughs> it's <laughs> Chris it's fails painting, to explain uh, technology. It's painting a world of, of, of just limitless potential. We're talking, you know, vast oceans, deserts, um, basically anything that you can imagine. Uh, we we kind of discussed that in the last chapter, too. Um, the crazy thing is it only costs you a quarter to log on. Like I said, outside of the cost of the haptics and everything. Um, they, they've created here a, a simulation that, at its core is meant to take you out of reality and put you into a new reality. Ernest Klein goes goes into the next part and, and is is very pointed in in mentioning the uh, social and cultural upheaval uh, going on throughout the world right now and how the Oasis is providing uh, humanity some refuge from that. And this isn't something we haven't discussed before, so we won't go too deep into it. But... It's, it's an interesting concept that your answer to global poverty, the energy crisis, public safety, all the problems that the world has, your reaction is to basically put your head in the sand. And they're creating the sand. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And, you know, it's the Oasis as a pacifier or as something that that hides you from the actual problems of the world. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And I don't think that we really need to answer that. Um, I think that's something that should be left to interpretation. What do you guys think? I think that's something that can be discussed at the end of the book. I think it's premature, at least on my part, to make an interpretation now, whether or not it's a good or a bad thing or what their intentions were and their inspiration behind creating this. Uh, I'm going to have to wait and see if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I get that. What about you, Chris? I think that people seek out entertainment anyhow. Uh, And I'll give an example. Like after 2001, I'm sorry, after 9-11 in 2001, uh, people didn't fly. And that's it's kind of similar to the setting we have here because the book describes it as, you know, it's an era where the abundant energy basically drew to a close, was no longer cheap. So the ability to fly, to drive, to go on vacation, to to do the normal social things you would do that would otherwise cost you money but not be a big deal, well, now you're kind of trapped at home. There's a perfect setup socially and economically for people to latch on to a different form of entertainment that kind of takes them away and allows them to go on vacation. I think where people really kind of stuck their head in the sand and just got stuck is because, as it's already been indicated, this is an incredibly addictive and sticky environment that once you're in and once everyone else is in, you're kind of obsessed and hooked and and hinged around it. So I think it's, you know, people due to poverty and finances and energy crisis, the, the time was right for people to stick their head in the sand because they had nowhere to go for entertainment. And all of a sudden, here's this solution to take you away from your problems and still not cost you a fortune like, you know, that week in Florida at Disney World might, which is now totally unrealistic yeah. and outside the realms of financial feasibility. Like going to Vegas wouldn't be a thing because you wouldn't have the money to pay for the gas to drive there, let alone fly there. So all of a sudden, that entertainment and that kind of vacation escape turns into the Oasis. Oasis is like, I've got your solution. So I, I think it's like he's describing the melding of a, a perfect opportunity for the Oasis to, to take hold and, and be that. I mean, I, I could see it as kind of like, yeah, well, you know, if you think the flying sucked before industry-wise, now that the Oasis is there, you know, plenty of seats. <laughs> <laughs> Far fewer companies that actually will fly people. You know, it's it, the worst, you know, could get worse because now people don't need to, to fly. Like, they're like, screw that. And then, you know, your airline companies start dropping out of the air. Right. I'm thinking of the timetable. 2012, it didn't look anywhere close to what it does in the book at this time or in 2045. That disparity in the world doesn't look that close at this point i know there it's trending certain issues are trending that way but did the oasis did the oasis create this world outside of it or did the outside world force everybody into the oasis and it seems more apparent that the oasis was a large contributing factor to the world falling apart right I mean, is there is there a level of neglect at, you know, beginning in 2012 when the Oasis went online for people to access? Was there a level of neglect that came out of that where it's like, you know, it becomes less urgent to fix your problems when you have some place to escape to? Mm-hmm. And it's so easy. It's so easy. Yeah. But yeah. so it's just a, it's an interesting thing. And I, I I don't want us to answer that now. I want us to keep that open. Because we got a lot of book left. We're only on chapter five, about to be on chapter six. And this is something that's going to come up constantly throughout the book. Um, with that, we end our, our, our today's lesson in advanced Oasis studies. Because that's the end of chapter five. Um, we will be back next week. Uh, with chapter six thanks for being patient with us as we try to figure out our holiday schedules and basically when we want to release the episode every week we try to keep it consistent but 
Life happens. We've all got day jobs. We love doing this, um, and we're going to keep doing it. Um, it may be a little late sometimes. Sometimes it may be a little early, but it will be there all the way until we're at the end of this book. <laughs> we, we know that. Um, a couple things uh, before we, we get going here. Uh, first of all, please, please, please take the time to go into whatever platform you listen to podcasts and review the show. It helps us out a lot. It helps us reach a bigger audience and it gets us a little bit closer to, you know, doing things like having contests or uh, getting getting people on here to interview. So, so you guys can kind of, you know, pick their brain, you know, give us questions to ask them. Um, reviews are a big part of that. Uh, tell tell your friends. Uh, I know a lot of you already are, and we really appreciate that. Um, but spread the word. Let them know we're out there. Um, that helps us grow, too. Um, and, and that helps us get access to those kinds of things, um, which, which would be really useful to the conversation in the book. Um, again, uh, if you want to talk to us, you can, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at GTTGPod. Uh, you can send us an email at gttgp.pod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also uh, visit us on Facebook. Uh, we're facebook.com slash get to the good part. Uh, and then, as always, our website, gttgp.com. Thank you again for all of your feedback. Thank you again for everything that you guys have done on, tw- uh, on, on Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, everything, uh, giving us feedback. We really appreciate it. Uh, like we said, we love talking to you guys. Um, with that, that's the end of chapter five. So long. Let's move on. We've started to talk about destiny. So John's going to remove this part. No, (laughs) we we work it in almost every episode. (laughs) It's like, Hey, I'm John. Phenomenal editor. You mentioned destiny. I'm going to cut it out every time. I'll, I'll say that next time.